Humanitarians may weep for the Indian and tell the wrongs he has suffered, but he is passing away. The American people need the country the Indians now occupy. Many of our people are out of employment. The masses need some new excitement. The war is over and the era of railroad building has been brought to a termination by the greed of capitalists and the folly of the Grangers. The depression prevails on every hand. An Indian war would do no harm, for it must come sooner or later. Bismarck Tribune, 1874. Then I was standing on the highest mountain of them all, and round about beneath me was the whole hoop of the world, and while I stood there I saw more than I can tell, and I understood more than I saw, for I was seeing in a sacred manner the shapes of all things in the spirit, and the shape of all shapes as they must live together like one being. And I saw the sacred hoop of my people was one of many hoops that made one circle, wide as daylight and starlight, and in the center grew one mighty flowering tree to shelter all the children of one mother and one father. And I saw that it was holy. Black Elk. Hello and welcome. I'm Douglas Bowles, and this is 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Monday, December 5th, and thankfully the Army Corps of Engineers have called off the Indian War that was scheduled for today. So today we'll travel from the Standing Rock Reservation to the center of the world, Harney Peak, which was recently renamed this past summer to Black Elk Peak, and there we will consider the life story of a holy man of the Ogallala Sioux, and we'll do so with his biographer, author, and journalist, Joe Jackson. Jackson, a four-time Pulitzer Prize nominee, has written one novel and six nonfiction books, including The Thief at the End of the World, which was named one of Time Magazine's top ten nonfiction books of 2008, as well as Leavenworth Train, a finalist for the 2002 Edgar Award for Best Fact Crime Book. Jackson is a former investigative reporter for the Virginian Pilot newspaper, where his work resulted in the acquittal of a man wrongly convicted of murder. His latest book, Black Elk, The Life of an American Visionary about a Native American healer, was published this past October by Farrar Strauss Giroux. In this sweeping book, Joe Jackson provides the definitive biographical account of a figure whose dramatic life converged with some of the most momentous events in the history of the American West. Born in an era of rising violence between the Sioux, white settlers, and U.S. government troops, Black Elk killed his first man at the Little Bighorn, witnessed the death of his second cousin Crazy Horse, and traveled to Europe with Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. Upon his return, he was swept up in the traditionalist ghost dance movement and shaken by the massacre at Wounded Knee. But Black Elk was not a warrior, instead accepting the path of a healer and holy man motivated by a powerful prophetic vision that he struggled to understand. Although Black Elk embraced Catholicism in his later years, he continued to practice the old ways clandestinely and never refrained from seeking meaning in the vision that both haunted and inspired him. In Black Elk, Jackson has crafted a true American epic, restoring to its subject the richness of his times and gorgeously portraying a life of heroism and tragedy, adaptation and endurance in an era of permanent crisis on the Great Plains.
The program is extremely honored to be hosting him today. How are you doing, Joe? I'm doing fine. Thanks for having me, Doug. You bet. So, I mean, right off, it's interesting to me how timely this book is, but I imagine that writing a history book like this is a pretty big endeavor. When did you start this, and what called you to this subject? Well, I started, I, I signed the contract, and I really started in 2012. And what got me interested was that I had written a book. Um, my previous book had been um, about the air race that made Lindbergh famous in 1927. But what it really turned out to be was a book about how um, America creates and then destroys its, its secular heroes and saints. And I started thinking um, when I was reading that, well, what, is it, what does it mean to, um, to really be holy? What is the, the nature of, of, um, of those people who we, who we deem holy? And so I started searching around, and time and time again, I came up against writers who said that Black Elk was probably um, America's only legitimate holy man during the 20th century. And since I'd really liked Black Elk Speaks back when I read it in the either the 60s or 70s, I I thought, well, I'm going to give this a shot. And so, um, so and it it took it took about four years to research and write and then get edited. Hmm. I know of Black Elk through Joseph Campbell, but I I wondered about the idea of a messiah at some point because I took this. Uh, medieval literature class in college and in that I had this kind of interesting revelation that King Arthur was a little bit co-opted so he was more of a according to the record he was like a battle chief a Celtic battle chief but then maybe the empire that was that kind of overran that area co-opted what he was and turned him into what he became which was much different and then when you think about the Romans and Jesus you realize that that similar thing happened there. Do you, could you imagine a, a hundred years from now where maybe Black Elk is this almost white messiah from America? Well, it is interesting. I mean, um, I mean, you're right. I think that many times oppressed people have a um, have a, a tendency to um, create messiahs, you know, and. Um, and 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 you're right. I mean, King Arthur was turned into a into a messiah, and um, and Jesus, even though he um, even though he at the time seemed to have think thought of himself as a kind of a prophet, he was turned into a messiah over time. And and Black Elk believed in a messiah that a messiah movement that that swept the West um, um, in the Ghost Dance. But would he be a, a messiah in time? I know that the Catholic Church. There are people in the Catholic Church who are trying to, um, who are petitioning to make him into a saint right now. And what happens in that case is that a petition is is passed around, um, signed by, you know, a few thousand people, and it's sent to first the um, the bishop of of um, the of the area where the, the saint lived, and then it's passed on to um, passed on to cardinals and on to Rome. But during that um, period, 
the proponents for the for um, the fellow for the woman or man or woman for sainthood, they're also looking for miracles. So what's going on right now is that there's a search for miracles for black elk, and there's a and there's a um, a, a search for for um, for supporters for signees. One of the interesting things that I took away from your book is this: at some point after the Sioux had been on the reservation, and one of the things that they that they wanted were not Protestant religious institutions, but Catholic. And, for, you know, it was interesting because in some way they could understand that, the the tradition and rituals. Could you speak about that a little bit? Yeah, that was really interesting. I mean, there were several um, of the of the headmen who, um, who liked the Jesuit priests. They saw... Um, in some ways, I think that the they saw the early Jesuit priests, like we're talking pre-Civil War and even after the Civil War, um, as medicine men in their own right. And um, the early priests, uh, there's um, there's an early one who's fairly famous, a Father Desmet, picked up on that, and he um, would wear, always wear his black robe. The um, early priests had these big um, metal crosses that they hung around their necks, so that was their regalia. And they had ritual, just like the um, Lakota medicine men did. And they um, they had prayers. They had um, they would often come equipped with you know modern medicines, Western medicines, and the um, and the Lakota medicine men would have their own medicines, and so in many ways they saw um, they saw the, the the Catholic priests as a um, as a kind of oh simpatico religion. Both the Lakota and the um, and the Catholics believed in the Golden Rule. Both the Lakota and the Catholics believed in a god, a um, kind of a major god, but then there were, whereas for the Lakota there were all sorts of spirits, for the um, for the Catholics there were the angels and the, the Holy Trinity and that kind of stuff. So in many ways, I mean, they saw um, they saw the um, the two religions as being sympathetic, and the early Catholics were even at the same time that they were slowly trying to convert the Sioux from their religion to Catholicism, the early, early Catholics could, at certain times, be uh, real advocates for them. Did you have a sense of the historical scope this book was going to entail when you started on it, or did that just continue to open as far as just how in-depth you were going to end up having to, to get here? Well, I knew I was going to have to do the um, Indian Wars, and I knew I was going to have to do the Ghost Dance, um, and I was going to have to address the um, the reservation years. But what I didn't really know was um, was how much I would start to find out about um, about Black Elk's first conversion, and then. Um, and then step away from Catholicism during the reservation years. And I, I think the reservation years are usually, um, even though they officially came to the reservations 
the Lakota official who came to the reservation after they, um, in 1877, um, I think the reservation years are usually thought of as after Wounded Knee, which is 1890 up to the present day. And, um, and because the Jesuits built such a um, wide-ranging infrastructure at Pine Ridge, which is where the Oglala were and still are, um, there were all sorts of records. And the entire, uh, the, the records of all Catholic missions in the United States are kept for, um, are kept in these files, the Bureau of Catholic Indian Missions. And they're all on file in Milwaukee at the, at Marquette University. And it's, it's, it's huge. It's extensive. And, um, and I found a lot about Black Elk's writings. I found lots of writings about Black Elk. I found lots of writings about how during the 20th century the Catholics were trying to, um, um, and these are, these are after the original Catholics were trying, the Catholics and the government were trying to wipe out Indian religion. And I mean, at that point, there was a lot more there than I originally realized that I would have. There was a lot, there's a lot that's spread around the United States. I mean, there's the Catholic stuff at Marquette. There's a lot of Native American history in the um, Smithsonian in two places, the National Anthropological Archives and, um, and the National Museum of the American Indian. And then there are um, all sorts of Western archives throughout the West. So I went to those, and I went to... Um, I went to battlefields, and I went to talk to people. So it took a while. Well, so could you give us a little bit of context, though? So, I mean, one of the things that I realize as, you know, the news recently with the the Standing Rock moment is trying to understand the, the territory. And then, so I guess one of the interesting things that doesn't come out in the national media is the idea of sovereignty, you know, as far as treaties right. and this kind of thing. And so then who are the people? And then we use the word Sioux and Lakota, but could you just give us a brush stroke, a thumbnail of, you know, where is this nation located? And, and then how come they have like Ojibwe and Ogallala and, you know, how do all these different parts fit together? Okay. So there were, um, there were the, Lakota slash Dakota Nation. They were first recorded by the French um, close to the Great Lakes. And, you know, we're talking about the 16 and 1700s, and there was white pressure from the growing American nation. And so the, um, and so this, this huge nation originally called the Dakota people, they, um, they split in two, and half of them stayed around the Great Lakes, and those were what the Americans called the Santee Sioux. And the rest started moving west, and there were seven seven big clans that started moving west, and they were the ones that were called the Lakota. Now, um, the Oglala, the ones that I write about, who, who primarily live now in um, Pine Ridge to the south in the southwest of uh, South Dakota they're the ones who claimed um, who claimed the Black Hills as their as their 
kind of like their holy center. And they were the primary ones who fought against Custer at the Little Bighorn. Now, um, now the other, I mean, there, all of the clans were important, but the other clan, which shows up a lot in history, were the Hunt Papa. And they were the people, the Oglala were the people of Black Elk, Red Cloud, and Crazy Horse. The Hunk Papa were the people of um, of um, uh, Sitting Bull, and whereas the uh, the Oglala had the uh, the way the way things finally shook out, the Oglala had the southernmost of six Sioux reservations stacked one atop the other, and the Hunk Papa had the northernmost, and that's then and the northernmost one is Standing Rock. And Standing Rock is where the um, the pipeline controversy was taking place, and the pipeline controversy is taking place at the very northern border of the of the Standing Rock Reservation. They um, they were afraid that um, they were afraid that, as you well know, that if the um, pipeline owners dug underneath the Missouri and this lake that was right there, then there could be a leak and it could um, contaminate their water source. But there's a lot of history that goes into this. I mean, you know, like I said, these are the people of of Sitting Bull and and Sitting Bull had been killed by American authorities back during, back in 1890. But the other thing, which is probably just as, if not more so, relevant is the fact that the Oglala were, I mean, uh, the the Sioux were the victim of two huge environmental disasters during their, um, during the 1800s. The first, of course, was um, the destruction of the buffalo. The second was that, was that the American government tried to make all Sioux self-sustaining and they first tried to turn them into farmers, and that that was a bust. They did try. There was a there was a parallel move to try to turn them into ranchers, and um, and that seemed to be going somewhere. And the the Sioux were very good um, cowboys, very good ranchers. However, the white ranchers um, who had a lot more political clout wanted the Sioux reservation land. And um, because they were, it was a great grassland. You don't really see it now, but um, but hundreds of thousands of Longhorns owned by the white cattle companies came tramping through this grassland, and it turned into an environmental disaster, kind of like on the same scale as what you have in the in the Amazon with logging today. And so um, and so, I mean, they know through their history that their um, that their livelihood is always is always under threat from environmental factors, and they see that they see the threat many times as um, coming from um, a partnership of big business and government. So that's the kind of the background of what's going on the histor- the two century historical background of what's going on in Standing Rock right now. I think a couple of things that. I'm I'm curious, and maybe you have some insight into this. When when they did, when we exterminated the buffalo, how conscious do you think that decision was? Was it? I mean, 
when you really think about it, it the implications are so evil. You know, just this idea. Well, this is this is kind of getting in a, in the way of commerce. And if we if we get rid of this resource here, then these people will get out of the way, and it'll be easier easier for us to move west. Um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. The same thing with like the the Carlisle School, where you know it we can we can make the only good Indian is a dead Indian. We can we can take that out of them and turn them white if we take all the Indian out of them. Right. How do you think they were aware? Well, I think the buffalo. I think the buffalo and um, <clears throat> and Carlisle, even though they kind of see the same, uh, seem the same. I think they came out of. Um, I think they kind of came out of two different sources. Um, there was a there was a move to uh, um, the U.S. Army pretty much realized before the Civil War that you know they couldn't they couldn't beat the Indians at, at their own game. I mean, you know, these guys they eventually the um, uh, Western soldiers, um, at least the officers, um, eventually called the um, the uh, horsemen of the Upper Plains, the, you know, the best light cavalrymen in the world, and they couldn't find them in their own, you know, in their in their own land. So they figured, as early as 1850, that the best way to um, to conquer them was to starve them out. But that was kind of haphazard until until after the Civil War, when uh, William Tecumseh Sherman was was made general of the Western Army, and he had been the general, you know, I mean, he 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 was the commanding general that that conquered the South, and he was a proponent of total war, and he believed that the only way to really conquer a people, which he did in the Civil War, was to um, was to uh, destroy their homes and destroy their agricultural base and starve them out, and they will have to capitulate, and that's what the South eventually did. And that, and he took that strategy and he transferred it to the um, to the the Plains Wars, the Indian Wars on the Plains, both on the south, both in the south where he fought the Comanche, and in the north where he fought the Sioux and the and the Cheyenne and um, Arapaho and, and and other tribes that depended upon the buffalo. So I mean, he was Sherman was a was a believer in total war, and total war meant starving out um, the enemy. So that's where that came from. Um, now, what you see with Carlisle and stuff like that, I mean, that I think that, um, you know, Sherman didn't exactly say the only good Indian is a dead Indian, but he said something like it, and um, and it was translated like, you know, it was made famous like that by the, by the U.S. press. But the, after the, um, after Indians were um, put on the reservation, I mean, you know, it was very hard for them to, um, to make a living, and they were already starting to starve on the reservation. And, you know, Congress at that time didn't want to appropriate money for, um, um, for food. And so um, charitable groups that collectively called themselves the Friends of the Indian thought that the only way to... Um, to, to um, help the Indians survive was to get them off the reservation, to, 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 to um, assimilate them into white society, and that was um, that was when the um, 
you know, Indian Indian industrial schools like the infamous Carlisle one, but there were lots of government schools too, scattered across the nation. That was when you know you you got that famous phrase: the only way to save the Indian is to kill the Indian inside. And what that meant was that they were going to turn the Indians into whites. So I mean, you can see a direct um, connection between the two. I mean, you know, the the phraseology, you know, um, the only good Indian is a dead Indian. Kill all the Indians comes from Sherman during the war. You know, when um, when the friends of the Indian are trying to assimilate the Indians, they said, you know, you got to kill the Indian inside. Ironically, the first comes from um, <clears throat> a genocidal war. The second comes from a kind of a mis guided theory of how to save the Indians. It's really interesting, too, in terms of just to talk about this, there was a, the identity that we placed on them. Is this, this thing completely from outside? It had nothing to do with... So they tend... Each tribe tended to call themselves the humans. You know, right. We, or and, the people. Yeah, or, one or the other, yeah. Which was very much like you know the wandering Hebrews, you know, or the or the, the chosen ones. I mean, this the Iguala, I mean, in the you know the Lakota um, over there in the upper plains. I mean, they believed they were the chosen ones of God. So um, as did the Hebrews. I mean, you know, there's there's always this tendency, I think, in many cultures that has its own religion to think that they have been chosen. But they definitely thought of themselves quite distinctly from some of the other nations oh, yeah. in the in the you know the United States. Oh yeah, 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 and that's where I mean, and that's where you know, that's where white Americans continue to um, misunderstand Native American history. I think because um, because. Each tribe sees itself as a sovereign nation, and based upon the treaties, their reservation is their sovereign nation. And so, I mean, we tend to see all you know, you know, all of the uh, all of the Native Americans as Indians, and they're all Indians, and and we all we kind of lump them all together. But I mean, you know, the um, the Oglala see themselves as the Oglala, and their cousins are the Hunkpapa, and you know they are Lakota. You know, and they're Lakota. They um, may or may not get along with the Crow over by, um, over in, um, uh, you know, in Montana. I mean, they do now, but back back in the 1800s. I mean, um, and you know, they didn't. They were warring nations, and so um, and so they weren't all lumped together. They didn't see themselves as all lumped together. They saw themselves as separate sovereign nations. Well, Hollywood really did a disservice, too, in terms of setting, taking the Plains Indian and putting it in the Southwest and then making them the bad guy. Yeah. It is interesting. I mean, you you, you do see, um, I mean, you're really kind of talking, you're really kind of talking about John Ford there. And it is interesting if you look at John Ford's career because he starts out. I mean, he, you know, he, he all the, you have all this the suit chasing, um, ch- chasing the stage, the stagecoach, stagecoaches, you know, out in Monument Valley. But um, but you know, during the during the forties and fifties when he was making all of his his movies, 
you know, the Indians were the bad guy. But then near the end of his career, he made Cheyenne Autumn, which was um, about um, a bunch of Cheyenne who were actually allies to um, to um, the, the Oglala, escaping from Camp Robinson, which was where Crazy Horse was killed, and... Um, and trying to you know return to their ancestral lands and that that he it wasn't one of Ford's best films but in some ways he was he was in his older age he was rejecting his image of um the Indian as he had portrayed him you know for two decades at least three decades i guess stage coach was in the 30s so but I, that's the fascinating thing, that part of this, part of the thing that both to the detriment of the people and then also which kind of is this time capsule that helps um, propel it through history is the romance of the West and the Western and the, you know, the, the Plains Indian. And so, you know, talk a little bit about um, Buffalo Bill. And so, I mean, well, yeah, I mean back I to think, Black yeah. Elk, his history is incredible. Yeah, I mean, you know, Black Elk, I mean, Black Elk started in the 18, starting in the 1880s up through the time when uh, Buffalo Bill's show finally went bankrupt in um, the early 1900s. Hundreds and thousands of Plains Indians hired on with the Buffalo Bill Wild West to tour around America and to tour around um, Europe and you know, Cody has been portrayed basically because of the Robert Altman film in the 70s as, you know, kind of this drunken exploiter of Indians. But actually, um, the Indians, many, most of the Indians liked Cody. He, they thought that, they, at least by their actions, they kept going back to the, to the Western Circus again and again. It paid better than anything on the reservations. They were able to send money back home to their family. It wasn't a boring life like what they had on the reservation. And what happened was that, and this is probably an unintended consequence, but Cody, in addition to having his shows in the arena, he had an, he always had an Indian village where people could wander through and uh, get a taste of what a Native American camp life was like. And that was a that was a huge hit. And you know he had a dance segment. The dances were um, the na- the traditional dances, which were part of the native religions, were outlawed on the reservations. But they weren't outlawed in Cody's shows. And so the um, and so Cody's shows and and other rival western shows that sprang up acted as a tool for preserving a lot of these old folkways that probably would have um, died out or at least gone severely underground, if not for that. And it was the romance of it. You're exactly right. And Cody, not in the very beginning, but by at least the 1890s, Cody was saying, the entire success of my show is based upon my Indians, and, and I'm going to take care of them. And he was, I mean, he... You know, he always tries his best, given given who he was and the and the time to um, to take care of his native performers. So, um, and you know, for, uh, there were occasional glitches. It was a dangerous job riding on horseback, and you know, for both whites and Indians, um, and doing various stunts. But 
but I think that um, that um, the Cody shows especially bred the romance of the West throughout Europe. So, so yeah, I think that was important. I think the romance, um, I think the romance did a whole lot to um, to preserve Indian folkways. At the same time, I mean, you know, the Cody shows created a an image of the conquest of the West. And the only way to conquer the West was to overcome the Indians. And I think that that translated to the movies that we're talking about, you know, John Ford. Mm-hmm. So I, I mean, I mean, so there's, I mean, there's a real love-hate relationship there, I think. Hmm. Well, I mean, so there's so many interesting little chapters or moments in that section, too, where... Black Elk shares a moment with Queen Victoria, and then I didn't even know yeah. about Mexican Joe. Yeah, Mexican Joe's kind of been passed over. Mexican Joe was really interesting. Mexican Joe, I mean, he was one of the rivals, one of Cody's rivals, and there were lots of rivals of Cody, but I think Mexican Joe was one of the primary early rivals in Europe, and he was interesting because he appropriated another Texas Ranger's identity and um he had this kind of like i mean it was a real horror show i mean he had the performers were always getting drunk and trying to kill each other and and uh, there was this giant fire where a bunch of their horses were killed and they had this stagecoach that kept falling apart during parades and pitching people into um um you know into the street or once two performers were galloping on a stagecoach down the main street of Liverpool or something like that and they were the um wheel came off of the stagecoach and they were thrown over a fence and into a doorway and into a into a, a young pregnant British woman um knocked her down and um I mean and Black Elk was in the middle of all that I mean after he he was accidentally left behind by um the Buffalo Bill show which was incredible yeah, I know. <laughs> and then he went on to have like this French romance. It's just like, oh sure. Yeah, he and so he, he and so you know one of the people that he was with said, well, I've heard of you know I I've, I've heard that there's some rivals in um, in London. So they went down to London and they joined up with Mac- Mexican Joe and and Mexican Joe. He's, Black Elk stayed with Mexican Joe for probably about a year. Or so and he went to. Um, and he went to France. He went to Paris. The Mexican Joe um, Wild West show was the first Wild West show to to, to ever go to Paris. And um, the French women were um, well. Victorian English women were were fascinated by um, by um, the, these young, handsome Native American guys. But in France, I mean, you know, that was the um, that was the European center of love and romance and art and music and and um and I think that women were a little bit more liberated than they were in Victorian England and um and according to Black Elk I mean um this young woman came up to him and and started talking to him and they fell in love yeah so um so he had a um he had a romance with a um with a young upper crust Parisian girl, don't know her last name, but her first name was Charlotte. So we're moving towards the end of the show, but we probably should get oh, into it. Okay. It goes really fast. Um, 
But the the actual vision and message of Black Elk is one of inclusion. Do you think, you know, we're talking about the romance of the native lifestyle and then how we kind of use them as a foil to our own empire building, you know, making them bad guy. Do you think as a nation we could come back? I mean, so that's one of the things that they're hoping for from Standing Rock, this this unity that it's brought together and that maybe there's a lesson here. Do you think Black Elk could be like the teacher of some kind of uh, new way forward that is less extractive than the kind of world that we're currently inhabiting? Well, I think people pay attention to Black Elk. I think they in the 60s when um, there were in the, in the early 70s when there was the siege of Wounded Knee, I mean, you know, one person who was quoted over and over again was Black Elk from Black Elk Speaks. And, um, and you know, a couple of people who have written about Standing Rock, I mean, they have um, they've quoted from from my book and also from from Black Elk Speaks. I mean, I think that there is a religious content there of inclusion, like you said, that basically says that we're all, you know, we all have to, uh, we're all in this together. I mean, we can't, you know, we, we, we can't be at conflict all the time. And, um, and that was the thing that was hard for Black Elk because, I mean, he, you know, he had his vision that said that in order for the world to survive, all people had to um, had to cooperate, had to had to work together, had to had to um, form uh, you know a continuous ring in what they what he called the sacred hoop, and that was especially hard for him because I mean he was a um, it was a real minority position in the in the 1800s when his people were fighting the whites, and yet he was being told that by some uh, he had medicine men who were um, who you know kind of helped him interpret his dreams, and he was you know they said that and they were surprised by um, what his vision said too. So um, so yeah, I mean you know Black Elk speaks. I you know one thing I hope from this is that it was interesting as I was doing my as I was doing my um, research as I go out west. I found that people were 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 very cognizant of Black Elk speaks. It's not it's not a book which has been forgotten but as you know i live over here on the east and um and they still teach black elk speaks in the colleges and 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 somewhat in the um in the high schools but it's fallen off a little bit and when i talk to people um in the east some about 50 50 50 some know of black elk speaks and some don't and you know it's a it's an american classic and it's a very sad book um and um, I would hope that, if anything, that if my if my biography could do anything, it would get people to go back and read Black Elk Speaks and remember that. And um, and and I mean, one thing that happens so often with the um, with Native Americans is that because they're on reservations, because they're you know kind of split into these sovereign nations, I mean, <clears throat> their concerns don't always make the press as much as say the black lives matters movement does it's kind of like they're out of sight and out of mind and i think that's a sin and i think that um you know i i hope that you know that my book perhaps but especially you know standing rock especially i hope that it just doesn't you know people don't forget it now that it just doesn't go away that people kind of remember um um 
what has been done and uh, pay attention to such issues. Well, that was 42 minutes. Thank you for sharing it with was us. It? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Good timing, huh? You've been listening to Joe Jackson on 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and SyncBook.com. For more information about his books and work, check out his website, joejacksonbooks.com, to which we'll link. For, for more information about the SyncBook, our guest, to check out past shows or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast and would like more, consider becoming a SyncBook Plus member. Some of the membership benefits include full access to the complete audio archive, discounts on books, behind-the-scenes scripts, bonus audio and video, as well as seasonal online hangouts with the hosts. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com slash membership. Thanks so much. And again, perhaps for the last time on this earth, I recall the great vision you sent me. It may be that some root of the sacred tree still lives. Nourish it then, that it may leaf and bloom and fill with singing birds. Nations and our people that been living here for thousands of years. Stand up. We've been fighting for our freedom since the Nina and the Pinta and the Santa Maria. Stand up. Like Geronimo, Sitting Bull, Red Cloud, Crazy Horse, Leonard Peltier. Stand up. Now they poisoning the waters for our sons and our daughters, so we on the frontier. We won. One nation, one cause, one people, one tribe. Now it's us against the pipeline. Get on your feet for Stanley Rock, and we'll show you how strong we could be when we unify. To all my native people, recognize yourself, keep your head up. To all my tribal people, recognize yourself, keep your head up. Planet Earth, it's been spinning, we've been living and dying, but giving birth the first of many nations, celebrating them days when all that got made came after what got me. These days we cater to these internet memes, internet streams, it seems them streams aren't clean. We need the whole story scene, we're hassling before water has gasoline in it. Malcolm X moment, Martin Luther King with a dream and war bone. Wounded knee plus Alcatraz dog on it. This is for the rock with prayers we stand on it. Oh yeah, we playing on it. The earth we camp on it. In a sweat lodge, singing our songs with grandfather's heat rocks all in the spot. We splash on them with a beatbox from my boy B Jam on it. Said a prayer for the black snake killers. Train on the front lines, they you're the realest. Stand for your people, stand for your family. Stand with standing rock, stand for humanity. It takes a group of people who actually care about. You know, Mother Earth and life and water being sacred and the land being sacred to say we stand up. To all my native people, recognize yourself, keep your head up. To all my tribal people, recognize yourself, keep your head up. Mini Wachoni, water is life. Mini Wachoni, 
Water is water is life. Water is life. Water is life. Water is life. I stand I stand I stand with standing rock. I stand with standing rock. I stand with standing rock. Stand up. Stand up. Stand up. Stand up. I stand with standing rock. Stand up. To all my native people. Woke up the giant. We won't go quiet. To all my tribal people. Don't mistake our peace as we stand fight. To all my native people. It's the calm before the storming. I can hear it coming. To all my tribal people. I'm ready for the battle when we ain't running. Stand up. Stand up. Stand up. Stand up. Is on a sad repeat. Is it liberty or we just acting free? As our land depletes from these hands of greed. See, fate is found. How we face the hounds. Take a vow for these sacred grounds. Make a sound that'll shake us out. Say aloud what can save us now. What can save us now?